this is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with fiction writer James McBride, author of the novel The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. You, you lean on craft to get you from one room to the next, to get your characters from one room to the next. But you go by faith when you hope those characters will, will move your story from one street to the next street. We'll be back with James McBride after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made... Well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is writer, musician, and screenwriter James McBride. His memoir, The Color of Water, spent more than two years on the New York Times bestseller list and is read in schools and universities across the United States. His debut novel, Miracle of St. Anna, was turned into a 2008 film by Oscar-winning writer and director Spike Lee. His 2013 novel, The Good Lord Bird, won the National Book Award for Fiction and is a Showtime limited series. 
Some of his other books include Song Yet Sung, Five Carat Soul, and Deacon King Kong. His new novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, tells the story of immigrant Jews and African Americans living side by side in Chicken Hill, a dilapidated neighborhood near Pottstown, Pennsylvania. The novel's main characters, Moshe and Chona Ludlow, run two businesses. Chona takes care of a grocery store, and Moshe runs an integrated theater. When the state comes looking for a young black deaf boy to institutionalize him, Chona and Nate Timberland, the black janitor at Moshe's theater, plot together to keep the boy safe. We began the interview with James McBride talking about where the book started. Originally, he was writing about a summer camp for handicapped kids. I wanted to talk about your acknowledgments because I felt like when I went read the acknowledgments, I sort of saw the initial seed of the book because you were so influenced by this camp that you worked at and this man who it really exemplified this idea of Takum alum, which is really to heal the world and how it morphed into what it is. Like, how does that process happen for you? Is it like amoebic like, is it draft like? Well, uh, it was, I suppose you could call it draft-like. I mean, I wrote many chapters of that first book about this camp for handicapped kids, and they just were awful. They weren't any good. And the only the only pages that were good were the pages that talked about Moshi. And this, you know, this guy who owned, you know, owned this theater who, you know, had a terrible time getting this first big concerts, you know, the, getting Mickey Katz and, and company to show up. So I was, after a while, after writing these chapters and, and going deeper and deeper into this story, into this story that seemed to be going nowhere, I just ditched it and just kept the part about Moshi. And that was really the beginning of the book. The forward for the book came much later. You know, the first italics business with the murder and all that, that came later after the story uh, showed itself. But, uh, you know, writing is rewriting and, if if you, if it feels hard to read, then it, and it, and it, if it feels hard for me to read, then it's not good. It doesn't have that organic quality. Um, you can feel it pretty, you know, at this point in my life, I can feel it pretty quickly. So I just ditched it, you know. I mean, I could have handed it in and, you know, and people might have said, oh, it's okay. You know, you always try to do your best, I, I you know, and. I just didn't want to write a book about camp and people went to, you know, you can't, it sounds corny. I don't want to read about a camp, you know? So I ain't writing about it, but I, but the love and the, and his sense of purpose and his business and the business of equality that Cy, a friend taught me and the other people who worked at this camp for disabled kids was something that lasted the rest, rest of my life. And I, I'm sure many in the, who worked there would agree. I mean, the true heroes were the children who taught us all how to live. But the, you know, the one who channeled what those kids did for us was Sai. And I wanted to show that on the page. And it it just came out this way. You know, I wanted to, I wanted a kid, you know, who had some kind of issue, some kind of physical or mental issue to be a centerpiece. But it didn't work out that way, you know. Uh, working Moshi towards uh, Dodo was not, it, it didn't work. It didn't work until Chona arrived. Chona was the one who was, she was the bridge. She's the bridge of the whole thing. Characters carry everything. Let them do the work. And, you know, it's like a plumber. You know, a plumber who puts in a bathroom in a, with a drain pipe. The drain pipe has to be sloped a certain way. If it's sloped right, I think it's, you know, an inch every 12, half an inch or inch or every 12 inches or something like that. You don't have to do anything. Gravity will just bring the water to where it has to go. And so in a book like this with a lot of characters, you have to have some, you know, you have some magnets that every everything is sort sort of sucked to. And Chona turned out to be that that person. So you you originally started off, your original concept was to write about this um, camp for disabled kids, and you somehow wrote towards Moshe, and basically the two probably primary characters in the book were 
Moshe and Tona, yeah. they, they were married. They were Jewish in this neighborhood in Pennsylvania that had um, called Chicken Hill that was turning over to become more black. And Chona did not want to leave. She had this wonderful grocery store and she had a great sense of community and she wanted to stay. And one of the things that really struck me when I walked away from reading this book, and we can talk more about what it's about, is how you were able to imbue every character with a unique sense of self that they had when you had so many characters. Like it's easy when you have maybe secondary or tertiary characters or even just characters that appear for a minute on the page to be maybe flat or caricatures of something. And none of yours were. They all served like an incredible purpose and had intentionally something deep and interesting about them. It's interesting to hear you talk about characters and, and how they're the magnet. So I'm curious how you do that. And maybe it's unconscious. Maybe you don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, um, I remember when I was young, when I was studying music, I went to Oberlin, which is, you know, has a, a wonderful music school, you know. And uh, my teacher, his name was Wendell Logan. He said, he was describing the difference between Count Basie and Duke, Duke Ellington. And he said, Count Basie's band was, they swung harder. They were like a big note. You know, Count Basie, for those of you know, your readers who don't know, they're both jazz artists. And they both existed in the, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. They were seminal artists, Duke more than Count. But, um, and, you know, there were Duke. Count and then Tommy Dorsey and all these guys were the king of swing. Which, and, and, you know, blacks got to be dukes and counts. But the truth is, Count Basie was, the, as Frank Sinatra would, would say, Frank uh, the, Count Basie was the swingingest band of them all. But Count Basie was just, his band sounded like one big note, like, pop, da, 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 And so they all played together. And which made that was that was the thing. But Duke Ellington, he had a band full of soloists and they were all great. You know, Harry Carney, all these cats were they were all great soloists. And and he was a great composer, as was. Um, um, gosh, I can't remember his name, but but Duke was one of the great composers of the band. But uh, um, da, 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 da. I can't remember the guy who wrote Take the A Train. But anyway. What Duke would do is he would let his musicians go. He'd let them fly. He'd turn, all, he'd turn the trumpet player loose and say, just go, play. And so he had this spectacular musical uh, extravaganza of men, and mostly men, unfortunately, other than the vocalists, who were just fantastic, who, who made a great... So I feel like in my books that, you know, I'm, I want to be more like Duke Ellington than Count Basie. Let everybody get a solo. As long as they sound good, we'll keep them on the page. When they stop sounding good, when they stop having anything to say, you know, you, you tap them on the shoulder and say, you got to move, you know, move over. And that makes a more interesting and more compelling story. That's a long way of saying it, but that's kind of where I live. I mean, in a way, you are like conducting an orchestra when you have this many characters coming in and out of your book. And I get the sense from talking to you that writing is a very organic process, that these people just come in and maybe you hear their voices. But how are you sort of managing them all on the page and the scenes they come in? It's 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 incredible. Well, it's all in the air. You know, it's not like I sketch it out, you know. Uh, what I do is I draw a big circle, you know, on a piece of paper and I put the names on the circle and then I'll, sometimes I'll draw a line to connect. I know they all have to connect some way. They all have to be in that circle. And, um, and then I just, one character, see, I'm writing about a community and a community is, is connected by a community is only as good as the characters. I mean, Listen, Colorado is no better or worse than Brooklyn. It doesn't matter where you live. It matters who you love and who you're with when you're living. I mean, if, you know, if I'm walking in the forest and there's a mountain lion that attacks me and the one I love, well, I mean, would I rather be there or at a disco in Manhattan, you know, doing the burn, baby, burn, 
you know, I give put me the, with the mountain lion and one I love. We'll work. We'll figure something out. That's just what it boils down to. So, um, this community that I'm writing about is is connected by people, and your job is to introduce the people to the reader without turning them off to the community. I read maybe a year ago. I read uh, Sherwood. Was it Sherwood? Sherwood, Ohio. With Sherwood, you know the the um, Winesburg, Ohio. Winesburg, Ohio. It, it was so well written, but it was very depressing. It was so beautifully done. What a talented cat he was. Wow. But, I mean, it was so depressing. And, uh, by the way, my book had been finished by the time I, I read that book, but I'd always heard about it. I just don't feel that way about, I don't feel that my people in, in, in my books and in my life are just not desperately, you know, grasping at it love or companionship or money they just they just don't they don't live like that i couldn't live like that seeing the world that way it's just too hard so uh even though several bad things happen in in you know uh in heaven and earth grocery grocery store ultimately it's a hopeful story you know you got to have hope man you know that's what barack obama said he wasn't fooling around you know, look how good he still looks, man. The guy looks great. Looks like he's 25 years old, man. <laughs> I'm not making a political blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, keep your hats on, folks. But nothing wrong with being hopeful, really. Yeah, I was I was struck with the communal, my very first note of this, on my very first line, I wrote communal story. And... It is so like everyone is so connected and plot wise, like how it all wove together in the end. It's kind of like it's interesting that you said you draw a circle because I could see it like kind of like almost like a dream catcher or like a macrame where everything is like knotted and folded together and it makes this beautiful design at the end. But is it a messy process for you to get there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you're really going on faith. You know, you don't really know what's going to happen. You, you kind of have an idea. You hope this happens and hope that, but it doesn't work out that way. And, you know, especially if you're trying not to write the book you wrote before. With all due respect, look, my whole thing about people is if you can't say something about someone when they're in the same room with you, you probably ought not to say it. So I'm not qualified to say what other writers do, but I can't write the same book again and again with different characters. There are similarities, of course, you know, between what I write and, you know, I guess I'll leave it to my biographers in a hundred years to figure it out if they, if they are, if I'm, you know, if someone is goofy enough to even try it, but I just can't write the same story again and again, I have to follow. So what means that, you know, you, 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 you lean on craft to get you from one room to the next, to get your characters from one room to the next, but you go by faith when you hope those characters will, will move your story from one street to the next street and then from one county to the next county, and if necessary, from one country to the next country. That's an act of faith. That makes writing an act of faith. But, the you know, the, the blow by blow, just getting them up, getting them moving around, you know, that's just trade. That's craft. The trick is to not fall in love with your words, but to fall in love with your ideas and then let your ideas go. Let them go so that story can enter the room. And um, so it means that, you know, you could be driving in your car. You know, I, look, I have like a million of these little books. I keep them in my pocket. They go everywhere. You see this one's, you know, loaded. It's just loaded. It's almost full. See? All that stuff. I don't. I, I probably hardly even look at this thing, but you know, I keep little phrases, things I see. You know, you know, a little jump. Let's see what I got here. Everything good is on the other side of hard. Ego is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. I mean, I heard this somebody say this. You know, um, when you live a good interior life, it doesn't matter what side of the prison fence you're on. I mean, this is stuff I hear or read or, you know, come across and I keep it. It's like someone handed me money. And now I have tons of these books. I got them everywhere. I got all they got. I got them all over the place. And these are from 
2021. This is from 2020. This is from 2008. I mean, I just keep them and sometimes I look at them and see what's going on. I have names and all kinds of stuff, you know. Uh, he decided he was going to do two things that year, be himself more and kill off his boring summers. So I don't know what the fuck. I don't know what I was, you know, I don't even know what I was, you know, anyway, that's how it works, you know. And you go back and look at these? Never, very rarely. I keep them around. If I have something really important that I really want to remember, it's, you know, uh, I'll I'll go back and look at them. But very rarely. I, I just keep them, I, you know, because I'm always like, a, you know, look, I, you can't write in the vacuum. You know, you can't sit at the, you know, in the Bahamas and write an action story. I guess you can. I mean, people do it all the time, but I can't. You know, I got to be around people and do stuff, you know. Yeah, I was um, going to ask you, like, how much does does going out in the world and living and how much does your life experience come into your novels? And when I mean that, uh, like, by life experience, I mean sometimes even a line can come from something you remembered from second grade. Yeah, well, I mean, I was a musician for a long time, you know, and I still play, not that much, but I'm writing a musical now, so I'm, most most of my time is spent in the studio, which I just, just can't stand it. I hate it, you know. Always hated recording studios. So, but, you know, having been a musician for years, you know, you play gigs all over the place. And, you know, you're not playing Madison Square Garden either, you know. You're playing a wedding in Long Island somewhere where someone says, you know, play something slow. Or, you know, or you're playing a club where people are drunk and running around and that used to be fun when you were 25 and it's not fun when you're 45. So, um, but you meet a lot of people and you, especially musicians who are wonderful. Musicians really are a lot of fun because they, musicians are a little bit like journalists. Like they know a little bit about everything, but they don't know much about nothing. You know, they don't know a lot about anything. They know a little bit about everything. And except and awfully unlike journalists, they're awfully they can be awfully naive about stuff when they want to be or pretend to be naive about stuff and then just throw it in a song and it's better. Makes them feel better. Makes everybody feel better. So musicians are a lot of fun to be around. I find, though, that now I'm the old musician, you know, to the younger cats listen to what I say. There's not as much raw discourse. You know, when I start talking, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, man, James, man. I just called this bass player last night. I asked him if he was coming to New York anytime soon. He says, man, I'm coming tomorrow. I mean, he said, you know, he's coming like whenever we tape this, he's actually coming tomorrow. I called him yesterday and he's bad. He's great, great player. I met him in Oakland on a gig and I just I just wanted to record him because I, you know, I didn't like what we did with the bass player who's my age. And he plays like how I play. But these young guys, man, they got a whole different thing. And this guy, he can play piano. I mean, he plays. So he said, Mr. McBride. Call me Mr. McBride. He said, Mr. McBride, man, wow. I can't believe you called me, man. He said, I'm going to be in New York tomorrow. I'm playing in Harlem. I'm going to try to record him. I don't know if we can. But my point is that when I talk to a young guy like that, he ain't talking. He's listening to me. Like, like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Poor sap. He'll figure it out. But anyway, I digress. We we were talking about just life and how much life experience comes into your writing. Well, you can't, you know, you can't write a great novel sitting in Starbucks every day. You can't do it. I remember I went to see Dexter Gordon when I was in college. Dexter Gordon's a great saxophone player. And me and three other guys, we rented a car to go see him. This was in the 70s when renting renting a car was a big deal. And I don't know how we got it because none of us had credit cards. So we got in the car somehow. We got to Youngstown, Ohio, and we saw Dexter. And then after the set, he sat down and talked to us for about 20 minutes. And we were saying, Dexter, Dexter, like, okay, when you play an F7 chord, do you do it? You know, do you do, do you run the B flat over? Do you do the tritones? And Dexter went and sat there and he let, listened to us talk all this technical bullshit. He was just, he's just mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, yeah. He said, well, I'm going to tell you something. If you can't play the blues, you might as well forget it. I'll never forget that. Because really what he was saying was that you can learn all the technical stuff in the world. If you ain't got a story, 
then, you know, there's no sense even trying to tell it. And if you're sitting there in a Starbucks, what you get, what you're seeing is people doing what you're doing. They're sitting there on computers tapping away. They're not living. Be better off going hiking or working in a car wash or tenant bar or working, you know, working at a working at Starbucks if you have to. Um, it's better to just learn how to do woodwork, something that keeps you active because without activity, your mind can't function right. And stay off the computer and all that cell phone stuff, man. Ain't no good. Yeah. And you brought that into your book. There was a moment where uh, Chona saw the future. She smelled the future and it was anti-community, essentially. It was, um, you know, when she was dying and it was really about a prescient moment. She thought she was smelling hot dogs, but it was really phones and the internet. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's that moment when they're all walking down the hall to her room. Well, actually, I editorialize at that point and say, had they seen the future, they would have stumbled out into the lawn and sobbed in mass. And that's true. You know, I get on the subway now. Everybody's got a cell phone. They're all looking and nobody's reading. I'm out. Maybe they are. Maybe they all read the New York Times. I doubt it. I'm the only one with a book. I still read the newspaper. Well, actually, I read the newspaper on the phone a lot now, but I still, you know, you see me walking around with books, man. You know, I'm trying to make money. I mean, if a young writer wants to make money, read books, man. Read books and get out there and do it. Don't pay no attention. Look, the sum of your life is what you pay attention to. Now, if you pay attention to a lot of this nonsense out here, you will be sorry and you will not be creative. You have to shut off. You have to know what to shut off from that. So you can get to the business of what you have to say, because, you know, we need these young writers to have their own voices and, um, you know, no computer. Just, you know, all this chat about AI. Da, da, da. Look, when you listen to Lester Young from 19, you know, 1930. And then listen to a sax player today playing Lester Young from 1930. You'll always pick up the Lester Young record. Because the other guy is doing Lester Young. So if you're worried about a computer doing what you do, you're worrying about the wrong thing because nobody can be you better than you. A computer gets his ideas from, from wherever they get it from. These, technic these technocrats, they think they know everything. Okay, great. Content is still king. And that comes from human beings. You know, maybe I'm, maybe 50 years I'll be proven wrong, but I doubt it. No, because AI needs human ingenuity to even it's like feeds off of it you know as soon as you stop having that there's no food i find the whole concept of ai absolutely boring i don't even know why people are talking about it i don't care what a computer does i got it's got nothing to do with me let them do ai and bi and ci i couldn't care less you know it don't matter you know you, you have to shut that stuff off and do you know do your thing as the Isley brothers said so 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 well back in the day. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to tell you my favorite line from your novel is towards the end, and it was a character called Miggy. And she's talking to one of the main characters who wants to try to break out your, um, your, I think the remnant of the handicapped um, novel. His name is Dodo, and he's deaf, and he got right. put put into basically like a, an insane asylum. And right. she said, "Everything got everything to do with everything," and I loved that line. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's like it was speaking so much to the tendrils of community that are together in your book. It was speaking to the cause and effect of everything. It's like that we are not alone here. It's all connected. So just wanted to tell you that and ask you about it. Well, I, you know, that was in the air and I'm glad that, you know, you connected with it, but it, that's, that's really what it is. Everything is connected. We're all connected. And the minute we try to disconnect from each other, that's when we get into problems. 
That's why, you know, the older I get, the more anti-religious I become. Like, even though, I, you know, this book is about, you know, it has to be deeply rooted in religion. Of course, you know, I grew up in the church and all that. This whole business of tribalism with religion is just bad. You know, it's, it gets out of hand. It gets out of, you know, it gets out of hand because it becomes about power and money. So, you know, everything is, everything is connected all at the same time. You know, I think the Buddhists might have something going there, but, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to label this or that, but um, yeah, that was just in the air, you know. That character, Miggy, was one of my favorites, you know, because she was so wise, and she was also one of the one of the representatives from the low god community, which was the community of people, the Gullah people, so called Gullah people, who I tried to explore in this book. My sister has a house in in Hilton Head, and she got to know some some of the, the last of the Gullah people there. And what a what an extraordinary culture they they represented and, and still represent, I suppose, and, and enjoyed. I wanted to get some of that in there. I wanted the book to be a cultural mix to show, you know, the power of it and 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 that we still we we did that and we still do that and we don't celebrate it enough. It's it's just become a point of, of divisiveness in this country, which is really it shows you how how clever these grifters are. So I wanted to show how people can be happy and be different. I mean, how, what's it hurt? how's it hurting me if somebody else wants to, you know, if a guy wants to be a girl, how's it hurting me? What, what, is, what, what part of my life is being, you know, destroyed because they want to teach because this eight-year-old decides that he's a sheep? What part of this has hurt me? I'm, if you can show me that, then I'll get in line with the rest of these schmucks. We're wasting our time talking about nonsense and, the, the, you know, denying medicine and these things that these people need. What's the matter with folks? I mean, how hard can the truth be? You know, truth is easy. If you can't be decent, step out. Leave the room and let somebody who's decent take over. Big deal. Is there anything else about, like, the culture of your characters that you want to talk about? Like, one of the things that I really loved was... Um, Nate and his reflections on, you know, his his place in this in the great world and the great turning of the world. You know, you wrote he was a man without a country living in a world of ghosts for having no country meant no involvement and not caring for a thing beyond your own heart and head and ghosts and spirits were the only thing certain in a world where your existence was invisible. Uh, I don't know, but I feel like crying even when you mention when you which I said weep, weep, sob. No, I mean uh, it just shows you the power of what words can do. Because I really wanted to communicate how lonely and how tough his life was, and how he never complained about it, and how fortunate he was to love somebody and to have someone who loved him. And that speaks more to Addie and and her love of him than it does to 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 Nate himself, because, you know, on the surface, he's not that attractive a guy. I mean, he's, you know, he's not that handsome. He's quiet. He just, he's not like, he's not the life of the party, but he's the person who knows how to make decisions. And he's made some awful ones in his own life. And, uh, and he lives in that deep, quiet, desperately lonely place that people who have committed some things that weren't so great in and he's found someone that has has made him whole. And gosh, isn't that a good feeling? That feels all right and out of sight. So, and of course, the invisibility factor, you know, that's how most people feel, particularly black people, but most people feel that way. There's a, you know, nobody sees me, nobody knows me. That's why everyone has a channel. You know, there's a hundred, everyone, you know, 300 million YouTube channels. Now our people know me for 10 minutes. But the truth is that, you know, the loneliness that people feel is real. And, you know, you want to communicate that to the reader by saying, you know, I here's a guy who knows what it feels like. He knows what it feels like to be invisible. Yet, you know, he's found something worth living for. And that's what I was trying to communicate. And, you know, communicate, found something worth living for in Dodo and the kid. And in his wife. And isn't that nice that somebody loves somebody like that? 
you know, that I think is pretty good. I mean, that's why these words come so, that's why they come so fluidly, because you believe in it. You believe, you know, as Cher would say, as that Cher, that great philosopher would say, believe in love. <laughs> I don't know what your personal, you know, experience is with loneliness, but do you feel less lonely when you are writing or playing music? Well, doctor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me uh, about it. Well, doc, you know, um, I'm I'm so used to working that I really don't know what it's like to not have those things in my life. So I guess the answer is yes. If I'm not working on writing and if I'm not playing music or, write, or writing music, I, I do feel lonely. But But I'm doing that stuff all the time. If I'm not doing that, then I'm working at something. I'm working, you know, I do a lot of physical stuff at my church, you know, fixing stuff, blah, you know, constant work, constant landscaping, you know, you know, in my churches in Red Hook, it's in the projects, you know, we have a little yard, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you clean up outside the church, five minutes later, the sidewalk is filthy again. I mean, you, you can just find stuff to do. So I, I just don't believe in sitting around too much. So, but yeah, if I'm not writing or, Short answers, yeah, I, I probably feel kind of lonely if I'm not working on my, you know, uh, my craft. But I'm always working. And do you do you listen when you get to your final draft when you're turning it in for the music in the rhythm? Is that important to you since you are a musician? Not really, because see that the music is part of the narrative. I mean, writing about music and and having music in your writing are two different things. When you write about music, you say, oh, well, you know, he, he the drummer for the E Street Band, he came, da 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 he played, he did this at Bar 12, and it was great. Well, they played, you know, Montreal, and then from there, Montreal, they played Texas, which means, like, boring. As soon as you read it, it's music, bar, you know, then they played, then they cut a record, and that record had, you know, but I don't want to care about that. I want to know what happened. You know, they started talking about these music books. They're horrible because they said, well, you know, and he cut a record and Otis Redding showed up and he said, hey, let's go get a drink. And then they got a drink. And then they moved and they went to Arkansas. Well, what happened? So you, when you write about music that way, you, you're dead. When you allow music into your writing and you allow the, you know, the sort of the improvisational quality that happens when a band is on stage or in a studio into your writing, then it just sort of happens. And so... There's no, you know, once this book was done, I listen, I never listen to music unless I'm just it's because it's worked me, which is good work. But I never listen to music for pleasure. I can't, you know, I can't listen to music for pleasure. So I don't listen to it. when I'm in my car. I don't have the radio on. If I had the radio on, I, I'm listening to, you know, news or something like that. If I'm listening to music, I end up, you know, I end up analyzing it and saying, oh, this what did, what did what did she do here? Why did she make this choice? And. You know, so I can't do that. So when the book was done, it's just done. And b to be honest with you, this book, I started this book like really in 2008. I started because my books are not hard to write for me. The research is hard. So I started researching this back in 2008. I went to Allentown, not Allentown, Norristown State Hospital. Talked myself into in the door and saw how, you know, Norristown State Hospital in Pennsylvania was, you know, was, I'm assuming it still is, you know, where they had people with mental problems. And I knew a couple of people that worked there. And then I, you know, I moved on to other stuff. I wrote Good Lord Bird and I came back to this and I was always, you know, kicking around how to do this. Went back to the camp several times, and, you know, never came with anything good until, you know, until the music started, you know. Um, and then once it started, you know, it, you know, listen, writing a novel is like, you ever go to the movies and you, they go to, they, they, there's the theme that goes, you know what I'm talking about? Well, <laughs> writing a novel is like just discarding all that and just get to the, you know, most what happens with young writers, they get into this and they just they, they're lost in that. And they dance there at Starbucks. They're trying to kick it. They never get to the story. 
And yet at the end of it, you got 200 pages. You're saying, why, why isn't this any good? It's no good because you haven't dug deep into letting the characters tell the story for you. You're trying to tell the story and you need the characters to show the story. And yeah. that's how it works. I just have, I've, I've talked to a lot of writers who say, I know it's done because I can hear the rhythm. Um, well, listen, whatever, however you can get across the pond, if the lily pad got rhythm in it and you can row that sucker across the pond, God bless you. I always say, you know, one of the hardest things to do is write a book, good book or bad book. So if they're hearing the rhythm, God bless them. Now me, when I get across the pond, I don't want to hear no rhythms. I'm done with rhythms. I don't hear nothing. But the end, I think one of your five questions, I'll answer right now my favorite word, the end. That's my favorite word, the end. That's it. I am done. Because, you know, the agony of doing this is not easy. You know, I mean, it's hard on you. It's hard on your soul. You have to shut yourself off from people. You have to really, I just go deep, shut everything off. And I wrote this book over a summer. Mm. Is it is a musical harder? A music, the musical is harder. Yeah, yeah, because you got to depend on other people to do stuff. You know, you're always dependent on somebody else to. You write a line, you write a lyric, you write a, you know, you orchestrate a little bit. You get it to an orchestra. You say fix this, and they fix it, and then you got to go back to them. You got to meet. It's just a collaborative process that is not, not nearly as. You have no power. You know, you you are. You, you have no control once someone gets a line or whether they just, it's a whole different thing. You know, I, I wish I hadn't started it. The only thing that's making me finish it really, I mean, because it's finished. The only thing that's making me go through it is just, a, I, I got to complete stuff. I can't stand to start something and not finish it. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? All right. Well, this is from, this is from Heinrich Von, Von Kleist. Heinrich Von Kleist, he's a, he's a German writer. And um, this was translated by uh, Peter Watsman. And this is from this story called Michael Kohlhaas. And I'll read you the first paragraph. On the banks of the hovel around the middle of the 16th century, there lived a horse trader named Michael Kohlhaas, the son of a school teacher, one of the most upright and at the same time terrible men of his time. Until his 30th year, this extraordinary man would surely have been held as the epitome of a model citizen. In a village that still bears his name, he owned a horse farm on which he quietly earned a living in the practice of his trade. He raised the children his wife bore him in the fear of God to be diligent and honest. There wasn't a single one of his neighbors who did not benefit from his benevolence and fairness. In short, the world would have had to bless his memory had he not gone too far in one virtue, his sense of justice turned him into a thief and a murderer. And that's the beginning of the book of the uh, short novel called Michael Kohas by Heinrich von Kleist. And I read this after reading, after hearing that the great E.L. Doctorow, who wrote Ragtime, was influenced by this story. And I can see where, where the influence began. And I can see, you know, this this because there's a character in Ragtime named Colehouse Walker who just, you know, he just can't stand it. His, his sense of justice just drives him to. Now, that said, Heinrich von Kleist is no E.L. Doctorow. I mean, E.L. Doctorow was, I mean, he was, you know, to me, he was John Coltrane. I mean, he was bad, man. And I got a chance to tell him that in person one time. And I ain't that kind of guy who goes around like, you know, but E.L. E. Doctor was, he was a solo artist, man. Anyway, so that's my little read. And I must say, I was looking for, I was looking for um, something else, but I couldn't find, I gave a bunch of books. Well, I was looking for Moby Dick because I love the beginning of Moby Dick. And I was also looking for um, um, Edgar Allan Poe. 
I was six to come to the death with that great agony. I think The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. But I couldn't find either one of them because I gave a bunch of my books away. And uh, I had so many books I gave them away. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is from the first draft of the book. I had to dig this out. This was actually cut from the novel and never made it into the novel. And this is basically about, this is the section where um, Moshi explain where we're explaining why Moshi has to give these um, these events at his theater for the local the local uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. You know, he has to give these dances where these muckety muck bands play and they play corny songs and and Moshi doesn't doesn't you know. So um, and this is Moshi talking about his life in this in this town. This is a so I'll just read read to you. Every time Moshe went to City Hall at Pottstown to pay his taxes, he glanced at the huge portrait of John Potts, the city's founder, over the city clerk's desk. Each time he looked at that picture, he felt a shiver run down his spine. The old goon reminded him of an old psychic who hitched on to, her, to his first gear traveling theater troupe back in Romania for a short time. They picked up this old coot somewhere near Austria, a haggard old man with a white beard and dirty white shirt, who claimed he could determine a young girl's virginity simply by touching her elbow, then tooting her breast with his thumb and first finger as if he were tooting an air horn on a Model T. Honk, honk. He did fine when suckering poor country Jews, many of whom were living with naked terror in their throats, keeping one eye out for the Cossacks and the other on the shifting borders that made them Austrian citizens one day and Hungarian citizens the next. But he tried it on a Russian Cossack's daughter and it cost him an eye. So I thought that was an amusing piece of, you know, business. But apparently uh, Jake Morrissey, the editor, did not. And he struck it. And, you know, I understand, you know, because it's, it's kind of like kind of like nasty, the guy squeezing young girls' breasts and so forth. But I thought it was funny. You know, Hong Kong. But anyway, obviously he did not. So it is gone. So that's the end of that. So anyway, whoever was listening to this, I didn't mean nothing by it. I'm sorry. I apologize. Dominus Sonus, E Pluribus Unum, you know, God, which I'm sorry. I don't want to just, you know, get you mad because it ain't in the book no way. So you ain't got nothing to worry about. You know, forget it. <laughs> um, where do you write? I write in a little office that's about, you know, eight eight by ten. Uh I face a brick wall. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh I just hit it. You know, I have a little typewriter. I usually do the first 50 pages or so on the typewriter. And then um and then I then I then I type it into a computer and then I print it out and then I hand edit it. And then by then I'm, I'm in the flow and I just throw the rest into the computer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I write longhand, you know, if I feel, if I feel, you know, something and I'm, I'm driving or I just, you know, I start writing, I just write it in longhand, you know, get it out. However you can get it out. Purge. Mm-hmm. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't, what, what can I, what, you can't, I don't get away from writing. Writing needs to get away from me. <laughs> I, I don't get away from writing. I, there's nothing that can be done. You know, you, you look, you're blessed and cursed with this thing. Live with it and be glad that you can make a living out of it. So I don't really go away. I don't vacation or anything like that. You know, very rarely. I'm trying to vacation next week. I'm supposed to be going away for two days, but I don't think I can do it. You know, who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Usually I show it to my partner, Tammy. She reads it. And um, she's real She's real literary. And then I give it to a couple of people as a singer named Carla Cook, jazz singer, old friend of mine. If it passes the Carla test, you're good. Because Car- Carla won't. She, if it's bad, she ain't going to read it. And then if I don't want it read, I give it to my siblings. Because they all want, you know, galleys, and they don't read nothing. They say, oh, I really like it. And they read the first five pages and they never read it anymore. Years and years will pass. Never read it. But I don't care. It doesn't bother me. You know, it's all right. How have you dealt with rejection? I I just forget it instantly. I just, 
you know, I, I forget all about it. Uh, it's just, it's, I've always been that way. My mother was that way, you know? I mean, look, forgetting all about it is almost as good as forgiving. It's almost the same. So you just forget all about it and, you know, don't hold the grudge about it. It's all right, you know? I, I've, I, you know, I never was one of those, like, I'll show them. Because it doesn't last that long anyway. You ain't going to show them nothing. By the time you're going to show them, they don't even remember who you are in the first place. So who are you, you going to show? <laughs> they don't care about you. I mean, it's not like, I had a friend one time, he said to me, you know, the white man, you know, he said, I said, you know something, man? And this is a good guy. He was a good friend of mine. <clears throat> I said, look, the white man is not, he's not worried about you, man. He's worried about his wife sleeping with the gardener. He's not thinking about you. You know, I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, systematic racism. Oh, I, I believe, I, okay, all that's true. But in general, you better just make your mark in the world some kind of way and stop worrying about that too much. I mean, you, you know, you'll run into that every day anyway. So just get busy, be kind to people, don't insult folks. And when you, you know, when your time comes at the plate, you know, swing the bat as hard as you can and try to knock it out the yard. And, you know, don't be high-fiving too much on the way to the dugout. Just, you know, hit home plate and run inside and, you know, put your money in your pocket and keep rolling, man. Be quiet. Be good. <laughs> what is your favorite word? My favorite word. I am proud to say this. I am not ashamed. Let it be said that my favorite word is the word end with the word the in front of it. The end. When you write those two words down, you know, it's all good. That means you've been through the draft, you've been through all the different drafts, and you're ready to hit that send button, say goodbye to it, and let, let the chips fall where they may. Thank you so much for your time and talking to me. I'm so appreciative. All right. Well, <clears throat> thanks for everything. Nice talk. Take care. Hope to see you down the road. All right. Take it easy. If you like today's show with James McBride, author of the novel The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, check out my interview with Walter Mosley on his craft book, The Elements of Fiction. We talked about how everyone can write a book, how writing makes you a more soulful person, and that writing is fun. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Ben Fountain, Jen Shapland, and Etoff Room. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.